Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this afternoon's session. And again, before we begin the presentations and discussions on this timely subject, uh, namely policy-making opportunities in business, finance, and human resource development, I too join uh, Dr. Al Shaiji and Mr. or the Honorable Jose Fernandez, and would like to take this opportunity to wish all of you here who are celebrating Il Aladha. Eid Mubarak and happy holidays, and thank you, ever thank you so much for sacrificing your family time to be with us. Moving on to the subject at hand, it's been said many times over, including quite eloquently at this conference, even at lunchtime today, that a successful economy is considered to be of the main corner store for development and, con and progress and especially amidst transition within a constancy as applied to the MENA region today. Uh, that said, MENA countries are facing a number of immediate socioeconomic challenges with dire consequences in both the short and long term. Consider the lack of economic opportunities, which themselves played a very significant role in bringing about the recent political changes in the region. Among a number of statistics and demographics, the youth, the youth bulge, including newly empowered women entering the economic life of their respective countries, should and are a concern to policymakers and decision makers today. To state that unemployment, the lack of jobs, is at a crisis point, an emergency in fact, particularly in the Maghreb, but generally across the MENA region, is an understatement. The, wealthiest, uh, the wealthier GCC countries, which of course differ from the Maghreb in their economic circumstances, dynamics, and uh, narratives, to have their jobs challenges. If not in the immediate, but over the mid to long term, that could deform their economies. Uh, recently, a number of ideas, big and small, have been advanced as ways to mitigate the economic challenges in MENA countries. Uh, facing the MENA countries today and into the future. As you hear these panelists, which I'll introduce uh, in a very quick moment, consider some of the questions and, uh, and uh, ideas at the, that have been considered at international fora, especially at the World Economic Forum recently. I have listed some of these ideas in no particular order. Uh, are the current educational systems in the region outdated? in need of reform, not preparing the citizens for the current and future jobs in their respective countries? Is and should the state be the main driver of economies in the region? Is a partnership between the public and private sector the way forward? Is economic integration of the region, which is very low as compared to other regions globally, a feasible solution? What is the role of technology, social media, is heavy reliance on the state for subsidies, jobs, sustainable in the way forward? Is fiscal discipline or the lack of, uh, the lack of it the problem? What structural changes and corporate governance changes are needed for better climate of investment? Austerity, is that a way to handle the problem? Change of mindset from, from thinking PhD to vocational training uh, and so on. And finally, a very provoking idea that uh, one Ibrahim Dabdoub, uh, who heads up uh, a very prominent bank in Kuwait, proposed and likes the idea of a Marshall Plan for MENA. 
uh, investments by wealthy countries in cash-strapped economies in the region within a framework of strict accountability and conditionality. Um, something akin to a combination of IMF and the World Bank. Is that the way to go? GCC countries are sitting on a lot of money and could participate in this type of Arab-Arab relations, which would be a win-win model maybe. Uh, for that matter, the U.S. Uh, private corporates are also sitting on a lot of cash, and that could also be something one should look at. Um, finally, when the MENA's political transition, while it's being debated, let us here in the meantime contemplate the state of education, training, development, finance, and business. We have at the podium five well-qualified individuals to do that. Uh, let, let me call them practitioners. From, a diverse background, from diverse backgrounds who in their respective presentations will shed light on what is being done on the ground, what has been accomplished thus far, what and where the opportunities as well as the challenges are, both from the perspective of decision and policymakers and for policymaking purposes. Um, I would like to call on Ambassador Fraker as the first speaker. Ambassador Fraker is uh, currently serves as senior advisor to Colbert, Cravis, Roberts, and Company, and as chair of KKK Middle East and North Africa. Senior advisor to Trinity Group Limited, and is a member of the Middle East Advisory Board of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, I will not catalog his uh, bio here. It's in your booklets. However, Ambassador Fraker served as U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia from April 2007 to 2009, spanning both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. Ambassador Fraker, I think, is, uh, uh, is bullish on small business and uh, <laughs> would probably be talking about a little bit about SMEs and innovations and entrepreneurship. I call Ambassador Fraker to the podium. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here today, and I'd like to thank John Duke Anthony and the Council for giving me the opportunity to speak to you this afternoon. And along with everybody else, I'd like to offer my own best wishes for Eid Mubarak to my Muslim friends. So this afternoon, I'd like to uh, focus on the issue of job creation and the importance of SMEs to the Saudi economy and also to talk about some important Saudi government and private sector initiatives to promote entrepreneurship and the growth of SMEs. But first, I'd like to begin with, with a little story. Uh, I was sitting in the lobby of a hotel in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia waiting to be picked up to, to go out to dinner, and I struck up a conversation with a young Saudi couple who had fairly recently returned from the United States, having been educated here and I was able to talk to them about uh, jobs and heard the, uh, the frustration and disappointment that they had in their inability to actually find jobs that they thought were commensurate with both their education and their, and their abilities. So I tell this story because uh, it actually happened 30 years ago. And uh, so for the last 30 years, this is a problem I've been worrying about. And I thought, well, 
you know, if this is the case for, for this young couple, how many more uh, problems are there out there like this? And the demographics uh, make it a greater and greater problem as every year passes, with 75% of the population under the age of 30 Clearly, jobs for the young is one of the biggest problems facing the government. So why is it that helping SMEs and Saudi entrepreneurs is an important government priority and an important part of addressing the jobs issue? So let me give you two facts. One is that Saudi SMEs account for 92% of all private sector business in Saudi Arabia. And number two, SMEs employ 80% of the private sector workforce. So if you want to grow jobs, then you have to grow the SMEs and encourage the entrepreneurs. It's as simple as that. So what is the government actually doing to make this happen? Well, in the last eight years, there have been a host of initiatives to focus on SMEs and Saudi entrepreneurs. A number of government-sponsored organizations and awards have been created. In 2004, the Centennial Fund was set up and it spawned fairly recently the Saudi Arabian National Entrepreneurship Center, which is ably led by His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Abdullah. You also had SAGIA, the Saudi Arabian Government Investment Authority, also promoting through a variety of programs entrepreneurship. You have the Prince Sultan Fund for Women Entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia, and you have the Prince Salman Award for Entrepreneurship, which is given out every year. In the private sector, also some initiatives. The Saudi Entrepreneurship Development Institute was set up by Sobi Badaji. Uh, it provides more of a technical college approach, but has been very effective based out of Jeddah. And Mohammed Jamil has sponsored the Bob Rizik uh, programs, which has seen the creation of a number of small Saudi businesses using the te techniques of microfinance very effectively. Universities also have played their role. King Saud University has a joint venture with Kent State to provide an entrepreneurship program, and both KAUST and CAXT also have programs. So lots of efforts to promote entrepreneurship and SMEs. But I want to touch on one particular mechanism that really helps make all this work. Every small businessman will tell you that the hardest part of starting a business is actually getting the financing to do that. The US dealt with this problem in the post-World War II era by establishing a loan guarantee program called the Small Business Administration, whereby small businesses could get loans from their banks and these loans would be 90% guaranteed by the US government. As you can imagine, this provided a huge stimulus in the US economy, and many economists believe that the uh, strong economic growth that we saw in the states in the 60s and into the 70s, to, large, to a large extent, had the SBA program to thank. Saudi Arabia also started a similar program in 2006, specifically to encourage local Saudi banks to lend to the SMEs and entrepreneurs. Under the Saudi program, which is called the Finance Guarantee Program, and which is administered by the SIDF, Saudi Industrial Development Fund, 
The local banks make loans of up to Saudi rials, two million, to local companies, and 80% of these loans is guarant are guaranteed under the program. So far, in the last six years, 4,000 guarantees have been issued to 2,600 SMEs for a total value of approximately 2 billion Saudi rials. Now, this is a good start, but I think it has a long way to go. Uh, the numbers sound impressive, but in an economy like Saudi Arabia, a lot more can be done. But clearly, this is an important and powerful mechanism for growing the SME market, it should be expanded by the government and strongly supported by all of us. Sadly, time doesn't allow for a greater discussion on this subject and many others, so I'll leave it at this, but I'm happy to take questions later on. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yes. yes the next speaker is Mr. Uh, Kush Choksi. He's Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He has responsibilities for developing and implementing policies and programs that promote U.S. trade and investment with the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, Mr. Choksi proposes to give a presentation on the commercial opportunities between the United States and the MENA region, a perspective from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Chalks. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you, Ambassador Freka. Uh, thank you to the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations and uh, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I would like to focus my remarks today on the economic and commercial opportunities between the United States and the countries in the MENA region, uh, giving you a perspective from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, and the over 3 million American companies that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the largest uh, uh, business association in the United States represents. Um, I'd like to you know, reflect on the region for a minute or two um, in terms of um, how some of our member companies see it and go back to the events uh, at the time of the revolution in Egypt. Amidst that transition, amidst the change, amidst the chaos of those days, it is also noteworthy that not a single American company um, suffered any material negative damage or impact. In fact, um, the country manager for Coca-Cola put it this way. He said, every day they had over um, eight, 80 trucks throughout Egypt uh, taking um, Coca-Cola cans and carrying cash with them. Not one of those uh, trucks was stopped or the work uh, impeded. Right at the, you know, the first few days of the revolution, certain companies stopped work. But the point is that there was no uh, business, um, direct business negative impact uh, from it. And I think throughout the region, in as much as the perspective of uh, chaos and trouble um, is something that is, 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 a neg is, is a perceived and sometimes real impact. It is also noteworthy when you talk to companies on the ground that they have not been uh, certainly negatively impacted by uh, the transitions in the region. 
clearly economic downturns, be they uh, global, be they in the United States or be in the region, impacts companies. And um, I would like to address in my remarks this morning some of the challenges and opportunities from the perspective of um, our member companies. Before doing so, um, I would like to uh, make note that over the last year, in addition to the business mission to Egypt uh, that we conducted about a month ago where we had over 100 American business leaders and 50 companies, the second largest business mission in American history, the largest being one that President Obama led to India uh, about a year ago. Uh, this was the second largest mission in, in American history. And clearly, the business leaders came from it with a great sense of optimism um, for Egypt, but also more broadly for the region. Over the course of the last several months, we've conducted missions to Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, and engaged uh, Jordan, Morocco, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, Dubai. Uh, so in, in what I provide today is, a, is, is really a confluence of uh, thoughts based upon a broad range of engagement with the region uh, more recently. Uh, focusing on the challenges, political uncertainty and transitions continue to be a challenge. We have challenges here at home in terms of um, explaining to our own policymakers, particularly sometimes on the Hill, in terms of the, the outlook from the region, and that uh, in as much as there are transitions, that those transitions do not bode ill for uh, the United States or American business regulatory consistency and a need to modernize frameworks. That is a significant challenge that the region faces, and I will speak to that momentarily uh, in, in greater detail. Ease of business enforcement continues to be a challenge. More closely at home, we also see a challenge on our side that US companies are not outside of the very large companies and outside of those in the energy sector vis-a-vis -vis the region are not always familiar or sometimes have impediments, uh, a very large um, uh, supermarket store in the US um, has constraints on um, personnel that it can uh, deploy in the region. Those continue to be, be factors that we have to address vis-a-vis -vis our own companies. But I would like to focus on the regulatory issue, regulatory consistency, and a need to modernize frameworks. Uh, because recently, the chamber surveyed American businesses and came up with five factors through the region in every one of the countries that the countries could help address that would certainly help enhance direct US business and portfolio uh, investments into the countries. There are five factors related to the rule of law that determine the ability of businesses to make rational investment and operating decisions and thereby have some type of expectation of returning a reasonable profit to their investors. Uh, transparency, laws and regulations applied to businesses must be readily accessible and easily understood. We have see, certainly seen throughout the region all of the countries make great strides, but it continues to be a factor as American companies look to the region vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, East Asia or the markets in Latin America. Predictability. Laws and regulations must be applied in a log logical and consistent manner, regardless of time, place, or parties concerned. Uh, 
regulatory stability, the state's rationale for the regulation of businesses must be cohesive over time, establishing an institutional consistency across uh, change in governments and be free from um, arbitrary or sometimes retrospective amendments. Enforceability and accountability, investors must be confident that the laws will be upheld and applied equally to government as well as private sectors, equally to state-owned organizations or uh, state private sector businesses, uh, indigenous, indigenous to the country or to American companies. And lastly, the due process, when disputes inevitably arise, they must be resolved in a fair, transparent, and predetermined process. From what uh, the companies would expect from the countries in the region, uh, these are five factors that would significantly enhance the prospects for greater U.S. engagement and investment in the region. Certainly, in terms of what we feel the United States should do, uh, as an organization that constantly advocates for uh, greater engagement, we certainly feel that uh, from, from our side, uh, reduction of uh, barriers, uh, particularly when it comes to export controls, would facilitate American investment in the region. Uh, freer trade, uh, the chamber advocated um, very successfully for the last free trade agreements. This region is unique. It has more free trade agreements to the Middle East and North Africa region than probably any other geographic re region in the world. Uh, Jordan, Morocco, Oman, Bahrain enjoy free trade agreements. There are certainly other very large countries, uh, Egypt um, and, and others, that we feel that uh, a, a more robust trade engagement from the U.S. side would create opportunities for uh, both countries. The um, Economic and strategic dialogues, uh, which was referred to, those are enormously useful vehicles for uh, bilateral commercial engagement, and it is something certainly from the perspective of American companies and our members, we feel would be tremendously helpful. Shifting very uh, quickly to the opportunities, growth and demographics in the region, as uh, some of our um, uh, the speakers have spelled out, provide tremendous opportunity for uh, American companies and uh, its partners in the region. U.S. products and technology, uh, there's a demand and an affinity for them. And this is a region that's uh, unique in that price is always not a factor. Uh, quality is certainly taken into consideration. The service industries, given the demographics of the region, education and health, uh, we continue to see tremendous opportunities for uh, relationships between not just American companies, but a broad range of actors in, in the region. So in closing, um, the, the, the glass certainly is, is more than three-fourths full from the perspective of our member companies, um, and certainly much more than half empty. There's tremendous opportunity and uh, amidst the challenge. And again, reflecting on some of our engagement with the region when we took delegations, the view remains very positive. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mr. Hisham Fahmi. Hisham Fahmi is the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce in Egypt uh, since uh, December of 99. 
Before that, he was general manager and uh, has played an instrumental role in promoting U.S.-Egypt business relationship through the organization of over 25 business missions to Washington, D.C., and other states. During his tenure at AMCHAM, which is short for uh, Egypt Chamber of Commerce, um, uh, membership has reached over 1,800 uh, members. Uh, Hisham uh, Fahmi previously served as acting director of the Egyptian Center for Economic Studies, a nonprofit <coughs> think tank that carries out and disseminates independent economic research. Prior, uh, Hisham has extensively private sector experience, including the development of quality systems and business development programs for the Egyptian conglomerate International Group of Investments, IGI. He has experience in the tourism sector and worked in representing engineering, construction, and electronics firms. Um, Today, Hisham wants to address Egypt's pre- and post-revolution, challenges to <coughs> prosperity, opportunities for revival, and potential U.S. engagement. Thank, Thank you, Hisham. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. <laughs> uh, yesterday, uh, my namesake, Randa Fahmi, uh, prided herself on being a lawyer, uh, and she said that uh, the way she thinks is uh, 1, 1 1.1, 1.2, 2, 2.1. Um, I am a, uh, I'm a chemistry graduate, so I don't think 1.1, 1.2, I think uh, CH3, N, O, N. So please forgive me uh, if my speech is sort of disjointed. Uh, also, Kush, thank you very much, and uh, Mr. Fernandez have said a lot of what I was going to say. Uh, but before I start, I would like to uh, uh, wish you all a wonderful and uh, aid Morsi. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there are many uh, challenging facing us, uh, unacceptable unemployment, a gaping budget deficit, huge debt, and an education system that is not up to our aspirations. Clash of ideologies that are preventing progress on the economy. I'm not talking about the United States. Th these issues and more are challenges faced by Egypt. There is a macroeconomic challenge. Egypt is facing a huge budget deficit, declining reserves from 35 billion to 15 billion, uh, basically shoring up uh, the Egyptian pound to avoid increased inflation or huge inflation. Uh, the Central Bank of Egypt has handled uh, 
the revolution and the aftermath uh, of a much slower economy uh, extremely well, and we hope it continues to do that. We face major issues when it comes to subsidies that affect our budget. The Egypt budget at the moment is 25% uh, salaries for uh, government employees, 25% interest payments, 25% subsidies, and then 25% to do everything else, including education, health, and so on and so on. So you can see that there is uh, a huge um, real, I mean, you really have to do something about the subsidies, and that's something that I think this government is planning to do. We're uh, waiting for an IMF standby agreement, which will be a stamp of approval for the uh, government's plan to tackle things like subsidies, to basically bring down uh, the budget uh, deficit. Uh, we uh, urge the United States to support an IMF agreement, because this is something uh, it will be uh, very important, not just in, uh, which is actually just now $4.6 billion uh, in support, but it's a stamp of approval of a, uh, of a budget or a plan that will bring everybody else into uh, the fold to support Egypt uh, financially. Uh, we look forward to the uh, GCC uh, and other uh, Arab countries to support Egypt. Uh, I was depressed coming here thinking about the Egyptian economy. And then I kept hearing all these sessions and I felt depressed even more about the whole region. And I think Egypt actually looks pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know. Um, the revolution brought um, aspiration for the youth, uh, aspiration of equal opportunity, aspiration of social justice. Uh, it brought the freedom of speech. And boy, everybody's talking. Everybody's talking in Egypt. And everybody's an expert. Um, but it also has uh, accountability uh, to the people. But the youth who, uh, who, are, who have expectations, and I think sometimes unrealistic expectations after the revolution, are facing uphill battles. They graduate with skills that are not uh, needed in the job market. The job market needs completely different skills. We at AmCham Egypt have an online recruitment service. We have 35,000 CVs or resumes on that site. And we have 2,500 job openings. So what happened? There's, there's a skills gap. They face a bureaucracy that finds it very easy to say no 
rather than to say, how can we help you? Egyptian youth have the entrepreneurial spirit. They really do. You can just see it everywhere. And it has uh, shown itself more and more in the informal sector. And that's where we need to pay attention. We need to make it easier for the entrepreneurs to be formal rather than informal. So far, it's easy to just be informal, avoid everything, especially paying taxes. So we really need to, to work on that. It's easy to set up a, a company in Egypt. Investment company. Three days, one week, you have a company. It's what comes after that. It's the bureaucracy, it's the licensing, it's the regulations. So that's why we have a huge budget deficit. We need the help of the US and other countries, but we're here in the US. We need the help of the US, as I said, to support the IMF agreement. Debt relief, Egypt still owes the United States 3.3, approximately, billion dollars from loans in the 80s for wheat and other stuff. We ate it. We ate it up. And it's pretty Chicago accounting stuff. I don't know. I think we've paid already like $10 billion already. But anyway, we still pay in interests on the 3.3 billion. Egypt pays $330 million a year repayment of uh, interest to the United States, and they have not defaulted once. The U.S. supports Egypt, economic support every year for $250 million. So there's actually a net transfer of funds to the United States from Egypt every year. Who needs support? Um, we really need that. I think it's on the books. The uh, Obama administration has promised how many? The Obama administration has promised uh, uh, debt relief of one billion four hundred fifty uh, in cash that's stuck in uh, in Congress, um, but we need to to really uh, address address that. Um, I'll just quickly what the private sector needs to do. The private sector needs to come look at Egypt, invest in Egypt. The opportunities are now. It's much cheaper now to come and be on the ground. Egypt's going to be. Uh, is going to grow and it's going to be a powerhouse very, very soon. Um, just on a, uh, there is a supply chain issue. If American companies can look at Egyptian SMEs, look at Egyptian companies to uh, bring them into their supply chain for projects, not just in Egypt but in the region. We held a supply chain conference a year ago with uh, friends at the US Chamber. Uh, and we brought many companies uh, to look at Egyptian SMEs and how to uh, encourage them to become part of that uh, uh, supply chain. Egypt is also has 20 to 30% of all antiquities in the world. 
I think the pyramids is the best investment project that has ever been <laughs> ever been done. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to, since my time is up, I want to uh, ask you for one practical thing that you can do to support Egypt. Bring your friends and come and visit Egypt. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Modi Al-Khalaf. Dr. Modi is the first Saudi female to be appointed assistant attache um, as cultural uh, assistant attache for cultural and social affairs. Uh, she is uh, around the world the highest ranked uh, female diplomat held by a Saudi woman. Uh, her current position um, as, uh, as I said, Assistant Attaché for Cultural and Social Affairs at the Saudi uh, Cultural Mission in Washington enables her to support students in two main ways. She encourages positive cultural outreach through students' initiatives, primarily by Saudi student organizations in the U.S. universities. She also supports students through her department, which provides social and legal assistance to students in need of such help. In addition to her interests in language, Dr. Al-Khalaf is also an advocate for women's rights in Saudi Arabia. She has written uh, in the Arab News on women's rights and in current, is the current editor-in-chief of Al-Mubtath. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, it's, called, it's the scholar translation. Uh, it's a monthly magazine launched in 1978 by the Saudi Cultural Mission that covers a range of topics of interest to Saudi students in the United States. Dr. Al-Khalaf um, let's see. That's more than enough. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Uh, Dr. Al-Khalaf, please come to the podium. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there is no better indicator of our personal commitment to the Arab-U.S. relations than being here today on Eid al-Abha. So, and that goes for every Muslim in the room. Um, to balance the scales, the council has agreed to hold the next conference on Thanksgiving break 2013. <laughs> the title of um, my presentation today is the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, Constancy Within Transition. And I know the theme of the conference is <clears throat> transition within constancy, but I did a deliberate switch because I believe that despite all that's going on in the world, um, since the program started, it has been constant. Constant in its uh, encouragement of students, of development of human resources, uh, not only quantity-wise, but quality-wise. So I'll start with a few statistics. Around the world, we have over 145,000 students, um, Saudi students. Um, the majority of them are on the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, 78%. 12% uh, are also sponsored by the government, but by government agencies. And then 10% are what we call self-sponsored students, which is a bit misleading because all of them will eventually be part of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. It's just a matter of time, mostly a few months. 
In the U.S. alone, 71,000 students. And as you can see, that's the breakdown. The majority of our students in the U.S. Are, are here to earn their bachelor's degrees. I deliberately skipped ESL because, again, it's misleading. They will break out into different degrees. So the majority of the students here are working on their bachelor's, followed by master's, doctoral, and then residency. Um, the number you see on the, on the schedule of dependents is because their spouses are, and children are allowed to study while they're here as well. Last time I spoke, the gender ratio breakdown was 28% female. Now, for some reason, and I just realized this as I was preparing this presentation, it's only 22%. It is worth um, investigating, and I say investigating, probably because uh, females are doing their masters more than bachelors and graduating in faster, uh, in more numbers faster. <laughs> All right, uh, this is a breakdown of our students by state. Uh, no surprise, California has the most. Um, followed by Texas, I guess we still love our deserts. Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Colorado, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Indiana are the top ten. Going down to states with under 1,000, I was surprised to see that we had more students in Alaska than Hawaii. That I can't explain. <laughs> Now, the total number of students within discipline. The highest number of students currently in the U.S. are studying business and management, and I'll come back to that when I talk about our efforts for employment later on. Followed by engineering and engineering uh, industries, IT, humanities, medical services, medicine, and law, and you can see the rest. Going down to disciplines with under 500 students, as you can see here, I guess we don't have many vets. All right, last time I spoke also, I spoke about all the benefits the students are getting, and this is for every single student in the U.S. A monthly stipend for the student, the spouse, and children. Full academic tuition, whether it's a community college or Ivy League. We never discuss tuition fees. Full medical and dental coverage. Dental, 5000 per year. Medical, unlimited, from ear piercings to liver transplants. And annual round-trip tickets for students and family to keep them connected to home. In addition, there are some other allowances that only certain students get, like rewards for high GPA to encourage students to study harder and earn higher grades. Also, allowances for scientific materials that sometimes students in certain field, fields need but don't have the money for. And finally, allowances for special needs students. Blind, deaf, and physical handicapped students earn more or get more stipends than regular students. All right, so how do we manage that large number of students in one office with less than 500 employees? A solution had to be created. By providing a 24-hour support system, worldwide access, and full integration with the Ministry of Higher Education, the eGov portal is an important tool in the successful communication between the cultural mission and the widely dispersed Saudi student community. It's really transmitted the student to a new era. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right, Safir, or as we like to nickname it, nickname it, SAF, was launched August 2011, and that has really helped us monitor the student and meet the student needs. So, what does SAF do? It helps us process their daily requests daily 
the mission gets over 3,900 requests. We process over 2,880 a day. After 72 hours, only 20 or less remain unprocessed. And for my students listening here, process does not necessarily mean accepted. It could be rejected. So what are these top 10 requests? Well, obviously paying tuition, financial guarantees for admission purposes, general inquiries, financial guarantees for academic tuition, and reimbursement. And I'd like to stop here at reimbursement because we even reimburse students for taking the TOEFL, the ILETS, the GRE, or the GMAT. All right, now, with all of these services, we've met the needs of the majority of students, but we realize there are certain students that need more help from the Saudi cultural mission, uh, prominently medical students. To help meet the ever-growing needs of its student body, SACM has developed many new initiatives and programs over the last five years. The scholarship program is not only for bachelor's degrees. It could extend up to, you know, residency for your MD program. In 2007, the program proudly opened its Department of Medical and Health Sciences, presenting students with a new variety of career opportunities. Really, we appreciate them that they offer for, for especially for women, to continue her study in nurses. You know, we don't have that. We work in the Saudi Arabia, and they really help us to, to get what we want from, you know, this program. Collaborating with leading institutions for hands-on experience, the department is opening more doors for Saudi students than ever before. They really want every student, every doctor that's under this scholarship to really have the opportunity and the chance. They don't want anybody basically left behind. They make sure that they do their best to get everybody a residency because in the end of the, at the end of the day that's you know that's what we're here for true so what did the cultural mission do it decided to start affiliations and sign MOUs with teaching hospitals and medical universities with medical departments those MOUs would guarantee certain seats for Saudi students only where they would compete against each other and that seat would be funded by the King Abdullah scholarship program these are the numbers of students under the department supervision. I'm going to skip the USMLE and ESL again because it's misleading. The highest number with over 350 is the medical residency and fellowship students, followed by dental, pharmacy, health science, and finally nursing. So did that step work? Yes. From about 20 affiliations in 2008, we now have over 147. Actually, in 2012, it's even more than that. And you can see from the graph here how much that's increased acceptance into Tufts, Toledo, GW, and the rest of the schools. What has that done for residency, research, and fellowship? Well, if I go just to the total, you'll notice in one year, that's 32 seats for Saudi students, 32 medical professionals going back home to work in the job force. Speaking of work, we know that the ultimate goal of every student here is to go back home and work. It's also almost um, a nightmare ca causing anxiety to the majority of them that they will not be able to find a job aligned with their qualifications. Like parents who think their job is never done, we know that our job is not just academic supervision. We decided to empower our students a little bit more and give them a little bit edge before they go back home. So, we started encouraging internship opportunities. 
And you can see from the number of companies here that the embassy, His Excellency, the ambassador himself, and the cultural mission have met with all of these personally, either the cultural mission or the embassy. And you can add on that the U.S. embassy in Riyadh as well to encourage them to take our students on for internship opportunities during their studies or on OPT after they graduate. We're also looking with the Ministry of Higher Education into sponsoring that one or two years OPT where the students would continue to be funded by the cultural mission if they were employed in internship opportunities. That has not happened yet, but we hope it will happen soon. In addition, um, for five years now, the cultural mission has been celebrating its graduates by flying them in from all over the states to celebrate their graduation. All expenses paid, two nights at um, a nice hotel, and then we realized they just don't want a party, they want a job. So three years ago, we decided to add a career fair. Um, the statistics from last year were we had over 78 exhibitors, Saudi companies or Saudi-based companies, that offered over 4,700 jobs and conducted over 1,300 on-site interviews. This was just, this was just 2011. Uh, 2012, right? <laughs> and during that job fair, we had free um, workshops and seminars related, of course, to employment. A work in progress is a SACIM career website. Um, it should be done in a couple of months or less where all students can upload their CVs and potential employers can search that database or post jobs throughout the year. Are we just supporting job seekers? No. And a lot of my colleagues here um, spoke, or many of my colleagues spoke about promoting job creators, and that's, what, that's our next step. That's our look into the future. During the career fair last year, we partnered with Riada, the National Entrepreneurship Institute, to offer a free workshop to students. Um, I extend my arm in collaboration with Ambassador Fraker to see what we can do and collaborate on enlightening the students in their options before they graduate here, and also with Mr. Fernandez from the State Department. We also know that another way to create jobs is students that have novel ideas. So in 2011, SACM decided to contract a top law firm to prepare, file, prosecute, and obtain U.S. patents for all sponsored students with novel ideas. All rights are conveyed directly from the U.S. government to the inventor, but in return, the inventor grants a royalty-free, non-exclusive license to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for the life of the patent. Since then, we've had 200 applications, 133 files open, 25 of them in chemical fields, and 108 in electrical and mechanical fields. Some of these ideas are bound to create jobs in the future. And finally, in conclusion, Inspiring future generations and building new possibilities, the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission is helping shape the lives of countless students by providing them new opportunities unique life experiences, and an exceptional education, all of which they will one day bring home to the kingdom, building progress, strength, and deepened respect for the future of Saudi Arabia. Thank you for listening. Last but not least, I'd like to ask Ken Close to come to the podium. 
Ken uh, heads, he's going to be commenting on these presentations and adding some of his own thoughts. Uh, Ken heads Quincy International, a merchant bank and strategic, strategic advisory firm that specializes in Saudi Arabia. He has been advising both defense and non-defense companies on effective business practices in the kingdom for decades, helping his clients understand Saudi government priorities, arrange joint venture partnerships, comply with FCPA regulations and sell their products and services while contribu contributing to the country's economic development at the same time. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Elizabeth, very much for that uh, introduction. And thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony, for having me uh, here today to make some comments. Um, obviously, our time is short. I think we've run over. And uh, my job here as a commentator is to try to uh, facilitate a dialogue a little bit. It's a little difficult when you guys don't have a microphone, so I wish you did. But in any case, we'll try to do that between us and, and, and the audience. And I'll, I'll be quick so we can try to have some of that conversation. Um, I'll just focus for a minute on policy making, which is the, uh, the focus of this, this conference, obviously, but in a corporate context, in the business, finance, and, and uh, human capital development context briefly. As, um, as Dr. John Duke uh, suggested to all of us yesterday, in the paper that were on, was on your table when you walked in, the dynamics of policy making really boils down to answering some key how questions. And he enumerated a number of those for each of the panels in that, in that short paper. Um, I spend my days giving advice to corporate uh, policymakers on how to be successful in the Middle East. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it's not uh, a task for the faint of heart. Uh, international sales is a difficult, time-consuming uh, job done at a distance and, and at great cost. Uh, but today, that advice focuses a lot on how to cooperate with and support government policymakers as they look to uh, develop their own economies and their own human capital. And that also is, is a non-trivial pursuit. This is very difficult. Um, so what we look at, and we spend a lot of time looking at, is how can foreign corporations who are looking to sell into these markets uh, support the economic development aspirations uh, of these governments, read, create high value, sustainable jobs. And the sustainable part's the really hard part. You, we could spend a long time talking about offset programs and how those haven't worked quite as, as effectively as they could. I think they could work effectively, but it's, it's difficult because they, they, trans, they uh, transect or they, they fall over a number of different government agencies, all of whom have competitive interests. And as we all know, governments don't cooperate very well internally with each other. Um, so in any case, we look at how can companies from the perspective of enlightened self-interest, proactively transform their standing from vendor to partner. It's really a difficult thing to do, but it can be done. How do they become, uh, how do they switch themselves from looking at like a foreign opportunist to an ally uh, of the country and of the government and of the people, frankly? Um, I think the dynamics of that interplay between private sector and public sector policy making is really going to be the key to success in these markets for everyone concerned. If companies can actually do it and if governments can stand side by side with them in, as they try to do that. So the one simple answer I offer my clients, or that maybe perhaps it's a warning, is if you're going to be successful over here, you're going to have to invest directly and take real risk. Uh, hopefully side by side with a government that, uh, that has the foresight to understand what it means to build sustainable industrial platforms that, uh, that can be weaned off the government dole eventually. So that's just a, a quick couple of thoughts to maybe provoke some conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Ken. Uh, 
We have very little time left. However, uh, we have a few questions in the queue, and we welcome a couple additional before we wrap up. Um, the first question is for Mr. Fahmi. In 1977, there were riots in Cairo against IMF subsidies, cuts, uh, subsidy cuts, and Sadat promised to privatize state-owned enterprises. Today is nearing end of 2012, so why will they actually, when will they actually do this? When will they actually riot? <laughs> <laughs> that they've done. <laughs> Cut uh, subsidies. No, I mean subsidy, listen, if they don't. And, no, I mean, I think it's uh, privatizing state-owned companies is more. Oh, they're not privatizing. That's not, what I'm There's no, there's no more privatization for a while. It, it got a bad rap and it's not going to happen for, for a long time, um, if, if that's the question. I think that's the question. Okay, that's so the why question. will they So they're not going to privatize. So. so no privatization. Uh, the second question is for Dr. Modi. Do all the Saudi do all the Saudi funded students enter US institutions on merit or are they reserved slots for graduate uh, graduate and graduate rates? No, all our students have to qualify for every seat they have, even the medical ones. The um, the criteria does not is not lowered for our students. It's just the competition with other international students is uh, is less so that they only compete against each other. But if there's a certain qualification, they have to meet that qualification. Thank you. Yeah. We're having trouble reading the handwriting of the third question here. I've asked Ken. Yes, please. Okay, let's try. This is a bit long. Uh, the continuous issue under consideration by the U.S. Supreme Court concerns reserving seats in higher education for particular groups. In other words, should they exist? Should there exist a level playing field? It's the same question we just had. Same had. question. No. Um, if you want to well, add. It's to, a different, yeah. the first one was about criteria. This one, um, well, I'd just like to note something. Sometimes teaching hospitals more often than not and universities have, um, are allowed certain seats for residency or, or, or fellowship, let's say six seats. They can only afford to fund four seats for that particular year or years to come. What the, what the cultural mission is doing, it's coming in and saying, you're allowed six seats. We want the one or two seats that you're not able to fund. We will fund them with one condition. Competition is for Saudi students only or among students only. Okay. Well, the next question is to you as well, Dr. Moody. Oh, okay. <laughs> Does Saudi government give scholarship or fellowship to foreigners, Americans, to study research in uh, Saudi Arabia? In Saudi Arabia? That's how I get it. Yeah, in Saudi Arabia, yeah, there are uh, certain schools that have scholarships for uh, foreign students. Um, several of our private universities, including some of our government universities. Government universities mostly in Arabic and Sharia. Uh, private universities in all fields. So if that person is interested, they can email me, and I'll connect them to the right schools. Other questions? Uh, I don't see any. From the floor, maybe? From the floor, <laughs> yes. We're late. The hour is late. But any questions from the floor would be welcome at this point. Change things a bit. All right. Then, as we're running out of time, we have one question over there. Yes. Can you uh, suggest or, or uh, help explain? Have the any entries for smaller businesses gotten any easier or less so in the last couple of years? Is it to the chamber or for, yes. uh, for those that the um, 
far in who couldn't have heard that. Could you address um, positive changes in the recent years, making it easier for foreign businesses? I think he's talking foreign small, business, or right? Small, small and medium enterprises. Yeah. Small, small and medium enterprises. No, I think there has been uh, a real push uh, for for SME development. Um, I think especially that the the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, has come in is stressing a lot on uh, small and uh, medium uh, businesses. Uh, I think that's one of their uh, mantras: is to promote uh, SMEs uh, in Egypt and to. Uh, it's part of their social justice um, plan. If there are no further questions, I have one. With regard to some aspects of tourism, uh, sort of uh, creative or innovative, appealing to um, uh, northern Europeans and others who starve for the sun uh, in the winter months and uh, want to head south to Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt and uh, places like Hergada and uh, elsewhere on the Red Sea. Uh, under the previous administration, these were allowed, and uh, they were certainly on the margins of Egypt uh, geographically, uh, and, uh, but thousands uh, uh, participated in these exercises, uh, Club Med-like uh, enterprises. Uh, do you foresee, or how, how do you foresee the um, Muslim Brotherhood element and the Islamist character of the new government uh, dealing with um, this kind of um, tourism, uh, topless tourism. Yes. <laughs> he said. I know that question is not for me. This question. Uh, I, know, I know because I brought my two twin sons to Hergada, and I hadn't been forewarned as to uh, what was there when we were passing it, walking in the sand. And one boy said, Dad, what's that? And I looked and I thought, my gosh, that couldn't be true. And then the other boy said, Dad, Dad, yes, what is that? And they were twins, so I had one hand over the right boy's eyes and one hand over the other, but they were both prying my fingers apart. I'm not, I've not been back there. I don't have enough hands. Hisham? <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> we support it. No, uh, no. <laughs> no, there has nothing, uh, actually, the... the <laughs> Well, definitely forget the topless, but <laughs> but uh, the uh, the government has made it clear there will be no uh, no actions uh, to be taken so far in preventing uh, beach tourism uh, as as it stands. Uh, that remains to be seen, of course. But uh, that that is the public uh, and and uh, statement of the government. Mm -hmm. okay. I think there is one final question. Of Uh, within the uh, governments that are, that are uh, resulting from the 
you so Thank much. Thank you. I, I would like to ask Ambassador Fraker. I think you heard the question. Uh, how are Islamic uh, banking uh, criteria uh, affecting uh, foreign and Western investment choices in Egypt? I think it's fair to say that one of the one of the greatest developments in banking in in the Middle East has been the rise of Islamic banking, um, starting in the 80s. And um, you'll find that every single bank operating, uh, certainly in Saudi Arabia and throughout the Gulf, will have some aspect of Islamic banking available to their clients should they want it. Uh, in no way has it been an impediment. In many ways, it's it's been. Uh, uh, it's promoted business. Uh, one of the things I should have said when I was describing the, the Saudi guarantee program is that it is Sharia compliant. So if you want to have uh, uh, that option, it's, a, it's available to you. So it's, I, think, I think it should be seen clearly not as an impediment, but as, as an addition to a range of options available to companies and entrepreneurs who want to set up businesses. I think, Kush, you want to, to add something? I certainly agree with everything Ambassador Fraker has said. Um, just in addition, the, the U.S. Chamber is participating at a World Islamic uh, Banking Conference in Bahrain in early December this year, and, and you have very large U.S. institutions such as Citi that have Islamic uh, banking entities um, that have grown. Can I, can I say a couple? Just, um, I, I don't think... Uh, whether you have Islamic finance or regular finance, it really affects entrepreneurship very much. The, the early capital is largely equity anyway. Um, what really affects, I think, the formation of, of a, a vibrant entrepreneurial community is, is uh, equity exits. You know, you've got to have a way to to, um, to raise the capital from incubators and other, but people have to have a, a desire to take that risk, and the only way to do that is if they have a way out. Um, so when these capital markets mature, and I think when the Saudi stock market, which is the biggest now, but it's the biggest because there are giant companies on it, it's not the biggest in terms of breadth. So as these things, get, as these things widen, I think you'll see more entrepreneurship funded. But banks are not very good at funding entrepreneurs, as I think anybody's ever asked a bank for a loan, you better have the money before you ask for it, because you're not going to get it. Um, so I don't think entrepreneurship and banks really go together at all. Interesting. Mm -hmm. There's one at the bank there. There's a question in the back, yeah? Yeah, and, and this is directed in terms of the um, uh, scholarship fund and where it, it, it is going and, and where it has been. I'm wondering, as, as you were sort of going through the presentation, um, you were sort of surprised a little bit about the figures of women and men. Do you also have a way of, of tracking, for instance, you showed the slide of the different uh, programs that the students are in, starting with business and so forth. Do those change a great deal per year, or are those pretty much set? The kingdom is looking for approximately this number of business graduates, this number of humanities students, and is the program ongoing enough so that you've been able to sort of look past these past number of years and say, aha, this is actually what's taking place, this is what's happening with these students, um, and so therefore it's not only a, a, a quantitative success, but a kind of qualitative programmatic uh, type of success in relationship to the um, Kingdom's ultimate goals and, and, and project interests? That's a good question, thank you. Theoretically speaking, 
When the program first started, um, yes, it was based on uh, brainstorming and the needs of the job market. And that's why when it started, it's, it was open to certain disciplines, mainly in sciences, engineering, and medicine, um, and a little bit in business and IT. What happened is when the students started studying, first of all, they started doing their ESL, and when admissions were tough in those fields, they started transferring in and out of different disciplines. So there's a bit of chaotic transfer. And that's why you saw the jump in business. We now realize that that could be a danger, and it would increase unemployment. So now we've stopped. We've stopped um, scholarships in business, and we've stopped allowing students to transfer into those fields if they already have a scholarship, unless it's for a really good reason at a really great top school. Um, hopefully, that will help what you just said, you know, get them into in the right channels again. Does that answer your question? And if those numbers change per year, they don't. It's a build-up, but yes, relatively speaking, we'd still have more next year in business until we succeed in getting it down again. So what there is is there actually are certain types of broadly thought of as... 17, yeah, 17 disciplines to be exact. And, and yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. There's a question there, and that's the last one. I'm not um, in the Ministry of Labor or directly involved in business, but I've spoken to enough people to know that, yes, there are rigid laws right now about what you just said, and that um, there are incentives for companies that hire more Saudis, financial incentives and, and, and other incentives as well. So it's, it's really um, a work in progress, but it's much more aggressive probably than when you were involved in the, in the Saudi business uh, job market. What I would add to that is that the uh, many of these entrepreneurial programs that I, I was talking about, there's, there's a real element of the Saudiization part that uh, is critical if you want, actually want to get a business up and running and, and, and licensed. And, and you have people like Sagia and, and, and others who, who play a role in that. I've, I've recently established a company in Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, have sort of on the ground, boots on the ground, first-hand knowledge of how, how this works, and everyone's taking it very seriously. Dr. Anthony, you have one final thought. Um, perhaps an oversight on our side was not to have someone here from the um, Department of Commerce or the U.S. Trade Representative's Office or the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Um, but what many um, uh, people are unaware of is the extraordinary service that the Department of Commerce provides in each and every country, each and every embassy, oftentimes in some of the consulate generals. Uh, a foreign commercial service representative is there, paid uh, by your tax dollars, 
and tasked with looking out for opportunities for uh, U.S. Uh, trade and investment and the establishment of joint commercial ventures. Uh, they can help with the research. They can help with the validation. They can help with uh, information regarding the capitalization of this company versus that one. The other distributorships, partnerships, brand uh, identifications that this company has, how long it's been in existence, uh, all of these things that uh, are costly if you were to get a private consultant to run them down. But the Foreign Commercial Service is one of the best bargains, I think, in the American Embassy services uh, rendered uh, to Americans wanting to travel abroad, invest abroad, especially invest abroad or establish a business abroad. There seems to be an American aversion to going to the embassy, using the embassy, even calling the embassy uh, for assistance. But they are there for your assistance. And some of those, uh, one in Saudi Arabia several, uh, about 15 years ago, was number one worldwide in terms of the effectiveness of providing uh, effective, successful, profitable business opportunities uh, for Americans in, in Saudi Arabia. It's pretty much that way in Egypt and, and elsewhere, inclusive increasingly in the United Arab Emirates also. Now, if I could just uh, echo John Duke's uh, comments, having run an embassy with uh, commercial operations in, in, in three locations in Saudi, uh, I, I came in as, as ambassador having spent my entire career in the private sector and, and had no idea of the resources and the capabilities that the, uh, the embassy actually had on hand and could offer to, to American companies. Uh, it sort of runs counter to the old joke that we're the government and we're here to help. Um, in, in this case, it actually is, uh, is absolutely true. On that note, we've run out of time. Please help me uh, thanking the panelists uh, today.